you know, and I have talked extensively about it, and uh, I don't want it to be misunderstood that when I talk about tradition, I'm not saying tradition in and of itself is a bad thing, but rather it's adhering to a tradition blindly. Um, you know, there are traditions that I believe are necessary and are a good thing as long as we understand why it is that we do them. And uh, because ultimately what our goal is as Christians is to come to a point where that we impart these traditions of Christianity to our children that they may understand why they are what they are. That Easter isn't about a rabbit, it's about the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. That Christmas is not about a tree or a jolly old fat man in a red suit, but rather it's about the birth of Jesus Christ. And, you know, critics would say, well, uh, Jesus, you know, they don't really know when Jesus was born. No, but that is the time, that is the appointed time that we celebrate that. Just the same as uh, whenever we celebrate uh, Independence Day on July the 4th. There's so many people that don't even understand why it is that that's celebrated. They don't understand that that's a date particular to the United States of America. Uh, that in Great Britain they don't celebrate July the 4th. Rather, they would probably look on it as a bad thing. And all these things that we do as parents, if we don't impart to our children why it is that we're doing it, then they may look around and they may find themselves doing it without ever really knowing why. And that brings in a problem. And if you have your Bibles with you this morning and you want to turn there, we're going to be taking some scripture from Matthew chapter 15. And we'll start reading at about verse 1. And Jesus begins to address this. But the interesting thing is that as we get down into the scripture, that Jesus quotes scripture from Isaiah, in which that he makes a reference to what they're doing versus what is the intent in their heart. And for the Christian, I can tell you that more than anything else, it's what's in your heart that matters. It is what your intent is. Now I know that the Scripture says that we should shun the very appearance of evil, uh, but I can tell you that in the times of the early church, their belief in Jesus Christ as a Savior was perceived as evil, but they knew it was the right thing to do. What you need to do is everything you can do on your end of things uh, uh, to keep people from perceiving certain things a certain way, but at a certain point, you're not responsible for what everybody else thinks. You're only responsible for what is laid at your feet and what you do and the things that you can control. And Jesus begins to talk to these Pharisees uh, because what they do is they're all the time jumping out and pointing fingers and saying, hey, uh, you're transgressing this. You're messing up here, yonder, and there. Uh, and Jesus has to try to explain to them uh, why that it is uh, uh, that He does the things that He does uh, and why it is that in their heart is the wrong thing. Because they look around and they're all about tradition and they're all about keeping certain commandments and laws and things like that. And Jesus tells them, but you're only doing it for the wrong reason. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason. It's good to give money to the poor, but if you do it only to be seen of men, you've done it for the wrong reason. It's good to help other people out, but if you think you're earning your way into heaven, you're doing it for the wrong reason. 
And that falls in under the same jurisdiction of why that it is that people say, well, everybody has ulterior motives. And that's the way they view the Christian church. That's the way the Christians were viewed in uh, uh, the early uh, days of the church, uh, that they were viewed as, well, nobody's that good. Well, I can tell you right now, any good that you see come out of me, it don't originate here. It comes from a different source. Uh, uh, any good that I do, uh, uh, that there's always, yeah, uh, there's part of me in it uh, that's hoping that I get recognition for it. Uh, hoping that I'll get some benefit out of being called a preacher, uh, out of being a pastor or something like that. Uh, uh, but if, the, if I ever start getting up behind this pulpit uh, uh, just because that it's Sunday and just because that I I'm expected to, uh, then my intention and my heart is not right. And I shouldn't be up here. God forbid that I ever get to that point. God forbid you ever come and occupy one of those pews just because you're worried about what people will think about you if you don't show up. That it's with our hearts that we're supposed to follow God, not just with our intellect. Notice verse 1 of Matthew 15, it says, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. Now let me tell you something. Now some people might take this Scripture and say, You mean to tell me uh, uh, that it's a sin to not wash your hands before you eat? Uh, I can tell you this, I highly recommend it as somebody who knows a little bit about biology uh, uh, that it's better to wash your hands before that you eat. But if you think that you eat a sandwich and you didn't wash your hands beforehand, that you're going to die and go to hell, I assure you that that is not what's going to send you to hell. Now, it may get you into the next life a little quicker if you ingest something that was on your hands that could be harmful, but as far as heaven or hell, you don't need to worry. And so the Pharisees, they jump out and they say this, your disciples are eating without washing their hands. And notice what they said, they transgressed the tradition of the elders. Not the law. If you turn back into the Ten Commandments there, you wouldn't find thou shalt not eat food without washing your hands first. It was in the Levitical law. It wasn't one of the Ten Commandments, but it was for their health and welfare. It wasn't a heaven or hell sort of thing. And so they jump out and they say this, and then Jesus asked them a question. And a good teacher, I, I found this out real quick when I started studying to become a teacher. A good teacher will answer a question with a question. And the reason being is not to be facetious or cutesy or anything like that, but rather to get them thinking. And he says in verse 3, But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Now notice what's come into conflict. Commandment and tradition. And let me tell you something right now. Don't ever hit your wagon or your thinking to something that will cause you to balk at doing the right thing because it's traditional for your organization or your friendship or relationship to do a thing that may fly in the face of doing what's right. That I've talked to people that have become part of organizations and everything uh, uh, and they grab a hold of that organization and they hold it uh, with everything in them. And then look around and it pulls them into doing something that's wrong and they knew it was wrong to begin with. And that's where traditionalism will get you sometimes. If you adhere to a tradition, if you go along with the group, uh, if you try to just uh, be part of the crowd, uh, I can tell you that sometimes the crowd rushes to its own destruction. And it's not a good thing for you to be numbered amongst them. 
But notice what he says. He said, verse 4, for, the com- for God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother. That is one of the Ten Commandments. That is spelled out very plainly, uh, at least uh, as my recollection uh, would show, at least two different times in the Old Testament. That the Ten Commandments, one of them, I believe it's the sixth one if I remember right, is honor thy father and mother. Now it goes longer than that. It said so that your days in the land that the Lord thy God will give you uh, will be long uh, and that you'll prosper. Honoring father and mother, uh, there was no condition put on say, if they're deserving of it. But rather, honor father and mother. I can tell you that that's one that has been neglected in the last several years here in the United States of America. Honoring father and mother. Uh, uh, but I can tell you this too, as a father or a mother, uh, uh, you need to strive to be honorable. Uh, it'll make it easier for the kids to uphold their end of the deal. And Jesus tells them, this is a commandment. And here's what your tradition has done. Uh, He goes on in verse 4 and says, And he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. Verse 5, But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or his mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. Uh, uh, What that saying is is that I reserved uh, uh, the things that I was going to benefit my parents with. Uh, Oh, I reserved that for God. Uh, And if God calls on it, I want it to be ready. Uh, I can tell you this. uh, God don't need your stuff. Uh, What God wants uh, is He wants your obedience uh, over top of anything else. Uh, And sometimes tradition will cause you you to balk at obedience. And as King Saul learned, obedience is far better than sacrifice. He learned that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and those that don't honor father and mother, that is rebellion. That is as the sin of witchcraft. I can tell you that here in our culture today, we have lots of traditions that people readily follow and they don't know why they follow them. And yet they get into the Word of God and they look at that and say, that's all a bunch of hocus pocus. And these people adhere to these traditions and and do all these things that just seem silly to me. But the same person will say, I've never had the flu. Knock on wood. And they don't know why they knock on wood. They don't know why it is they make a wish before they blow out birthday candles. uh, Not realizing that the pagan tradition was uh, that the smoke from the candles would carry their wish to the gods. uh, Or that knocking on wood paid homage uh, to the god of chance. uh, And yet they laugh and look at us because we bow our head uh, before that we eat a meal. I had to explain this to another Christian one time when they said, is it that important to pray before you eat? And I said, if you miss one time, God ain't going to hold it against you. I said that the most important time to bow your head and thank God for a meal, what should really be in the forefront of your mind is not, well, this is just what I'm supposed to do, but rather, I know that if it weren't for God, I'd never have another meal. That if it weren't for God, I wouldn't be able to go out and hoe in the corn or pull the weeds or Till the ground or plant the seeds or go down to Walmart and slide that cart through that machine and purchase this food. And if we, if we bow our heads and pray over our meal just because, well, everybody's watching. I'm with a bunch of Christian people. Then I think we've missed the point. The intent of our heart should be such that even if we were about to starve to death, 
and suddenly uh, we got a bologna sandwich, which most people would look down their nose at in today's society. Uh, uh, that bologna is the white trash people food now. Uh, uh, but they would look at that and say, well, that ain't no good. But I can tell you, I, I'm just as thankful for that as what I would be a steak if I was hungry. You'll notice that sometimes if we're not thankful, we get lifted up in everything else. But I can tell you as a person who is acquainted with failure, who is acquainted with mistakes that have costed, that have caused difficulty in life, I can tell you that being thankful to God ought to be the first and foremost in our hearts and minds because the times in which that I've sat down and had my little pity parties, you know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about everything I didn't have. And I can tell you that the most miserable people in the world concentrate only on what they don't have. And the happiest people in the world concentrate on what they do have. And Jesus is talking to these Pharisees that it's all about outward appearance. It's all about how they look before the world. And so they're keeping this tradition and they're saying, well, we don't really have to honor father and mother because I reserve my stuff in case God needs it. I've set it aside here just in case. And the thing is, is they knew. They knew full well that God wasn't going to call on it. And if He did, they would miss the sign anyway. And so Jesus tells them, you've made the commandment of God of none effect by your traditions because of what you think. Not because that you're trying to adhere to the Word of God and the intent of your heart is good, but rather just because you want to hang on to your stuff. And He goes on and He says... Verse 6, And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. Verse 7, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying... Now I want you to pay very close attention to this verse right here and see if it doesn't apply to a good portion of the population of the country in which we live. Verse 8, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth... And however, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. These are the people who say, uh, first and foremost, I don't think uh, that we should have to go to church. Uh, I don't think uh, that I should have to study the Bible so much. Uh, I don't think uh, that I should have to pray all the time. Uh, I've got what I need uh, and I don't need any more. And what that makes me think about as a little kid... As a parent and as my children have grown up, you know what my children knew about need? Virtually nothing. They didn't know, they didn't have the sense to know what they needed. And they really didn't have enough sense uh, to know what they ought to want. And the Ten Commandments uh, are all about us uh, coming to what we need uh, uh, and then getting us to want the right things. And Jesus tells him, He said, Isaiah prophesied about you. Spoke about you a long time ago. When it was now that uh, your mouth would say one thing. And before men you would be a particular way. Uh, uh, earlier in this book, He told him, He said, don't uh, pray as the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the hypocrites do. Uh, going in long flowing robes and loving the greetings in the marketplace. Uh, uh, or sounding a horn whenever they're fasting. 
He said, do it in secret that God may reward openly. He's talking to this same group of people uh, uh, that in another spot He would say, look, uh, not only will you not go in, but you'll actually stop those that would. And you consume widows' homes uh, uh, with your rules and your traditions and heap burdens upon men when you, if you could just lift your little finger to take them off and you won't do it. And they take a commandment of God One of the things that is irrefutable in the Ten Commandments spelled out very plainly and through tradition they say, it doesn't really matter. It's not really that important. And I can tell you which is more important. The tradition or the reason that you keep the tradition. Because what was in their heart was I want to hang on to my stuff. I don't want to give. I don't want to give to God. And I've heard preachers say this all my life. You know, you can't outgive God. It's not yours. Would a man rob God? And all of these things. But you balance that against God loves a cheerful giver. And I can tell you that if your motivation for giving is because uh, uh, that you don't want to be perceived as robbing God uh, uh, or because that you're afraid somebody's watching or something like that, you've done messed up. You've given for the wrong reason. But if you're glad because when you give, you look and say, you know what? I've got a good job. And I've got enough and then some. And the only reason that I have that is because that God has blessed me to be able to acquire that. And I'm thankful and this is the least, least that I could do. That will get you close to the right frame of mind. You may say, how does one get to that point, Brother Jeremiah? I can tell you the only way that I know how to get to that point is to really just get up close to God. And concentrate on what you do have rather than what you don't have. And Jesus goes on in verse 9. He says, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. He told them, he said, what you do, everything that you do is really ultimately pointless. You ever done that? I know... In working on automobiles, one of the things that infuriates me the quickest is when I'm, it's something that I'd never worked on before and I'm trying to figure it out and maybe I spend 30 minutes or an hour twisting bolts and contorting myself into positions to get to something only to find out that what I did helped zero. I've gone through that recently in case you hadn't guessed. How annoying that is. It's a zero sum. It profited nothing. And that's what Jesus is talking about. You guys are doing all this stuff and it's not helping anything. You're not gaining any ground. In fact, you've lost ground. You think that you're on the path and you're as lost as a baseball in high weeds. Because that you are centering on the wrong thing. And the great commandment, uh, uh, if you turn into the book of Deuteronomy, uh, when Moses was talking about it, Deuteronomy chapter 5, and right after, in, in, or Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, in chapter 5, Moses has just rehashed the Ten Commandments. But then in verse 3 of chapter 6, Moses says what Jesus later in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke actually says is the most important commandment. Verse 3 says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that they may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers has promised thee, 
in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, that the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. What he was saying is that if you knock that out of the park, the rest of them will be easy. But tradition will get in the way. Organizations and friendships and relationships, if they get in the way of your ability to put God first in your life, something's wrong. That a lot of times a problem comes in and we may only see the symptoms. A problem comes in and we may look and say, well, I perceive that this is the problem and all that you're treating is the symptoms. And I can tell you if that's the case, nothing's really ever going to get better. That a lot of times what's wrong with us, what's wrong with those that are lost and undone is a lack of putting God first. Of getting the heart right. If the heart gets right, the head will follow. As I believe it was Chuck Swindoll said one time that the heart is like a well and the tongue is a bucket. And it goes down and all that it can bring out of that well is what's in there. And Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart doth the mouth speak. Meaning that if we go down into that well and we bring forth vile and poisonous things, that is a symptom of the heart. What is your reaction when you're caught off guard? When you get scared or angry? What is your reaction? As they would say, what is that knee-jerk reaction? That quick thing without thinking or filtering anything. How bad is it? Let's be honest with ourselves. How bad is it? Because if all we do is study the Bible as part of a routine and pray as part of a routine and come to church just because that it's routine we've got a heart problem if it's only tradition a few years ago I was blessed to be able to be in Washington DC for a few days on a trip with uh, Faith and I took and we were there at the the National Mall they call it it's the area that kind of is off it's in between the Washington Memorial and the White House there. And along that, and it's a massive area, along that, there's museums, several. It, it, I was pretty old before I realized that the Smithsonian wasn't just one building, but a collection of museums. And Faith and I were there, and I remember we went into the American History Museum, a place that to me was someplace I'd always wanted to go ever since that I'd heard about it and learned about it. We went in there. And we walked through this museum. And I remember how it felt for me being in that place. And one of the things, and I've still got a picture of it on my phone. One of the things that I seen there was a sword. And time had ravaged that old sword. And it was well worn. And right up above that sword was a portrait of a man that we see regularly, at least if we ever handle any cash. George Washington's portrait was above that. And it was his sword that sat there in that museum. And I stood there before that sword and I looked at that. And I'd read all about it, you know, and, 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 and I love history. Anybody that knows me knows that. And 
The thing that, that really caught me right there in amongst, there were children complaining because they didn't want to be in there behind me. There were parents that were just in there and they were taking pictures of everything and they couldn't have cared less. I've seen it. People hardly even looked at that sword. And I lingered there for a good long while. Looked at it. Because what I seen was I seen the culmination of the effort in a man's life and trust in God to get him to that point. And, and, and the thing read, and I already knew pretty well what it would say, but I read it. Read it to myself there standing there. About how it was that George Washington, as soon as the Treaty of Paris was signed, and he got word. You see, he had fought long and hard for many years. The Revolutionary War started in 1776, but it didn't end until 1783. It went on for several years. And that as soon as Washington heard now, his men, they had taken him and they said, we'll set you up as king of the United States. And it said that he sharply rebuked them for that and told them, he said, I have not fought all these long years against George III to give you George I. And he rebuked them for it. And when the news came that the war was over, said that he made a beeline to Congress and gave them that very sword that I was standing in front of and said, now I retire to Mount Vernon and believed his public service finished. That he had all that power and he gave it up and set it down there. And how it was tradition for people to go in and see that and everybody knows something about George Washington. But what I seen was a man who what he really wanted to do was to serve. And how honorable that that was. Our traditions, we don't talk about that. Our children nowadays are not patriotic. It's almost as though our children are afraid of acknowledging the fact that they're an American. Later on, I had the opportunity to be in Philadelphia. There where it was that John Adams became the second president of the United States. Then it struck me, whenever it was that the uh, person there in, in the Independence Hall was talking about it, and they said that there were dignitaries from all over the world to watch that that day. Why? Because it was the first peaceful transfer of power that had ever taken place. It was new and it was unique. And people may look at the United States and they may say, well, I don't like their president. I don't like their foreign policy. They consume more of the world's natural resources than anything else. And maybe we do. I'm not going to argue that one way or the other. But I can stand here and tell you today, I'm proud to be an American. Because here, I'm able to stand behind this pulpit without fear. Patriotism is not about approval of the government or Congress or anything else. It's about approval of the idea that all men are endowed from their Creator with inalienable rights. That was the first thing that those men acknowledged. That it come from God that He created all men equal. My patriotism doesn't extend to the presidency or the Congress. It's not about a tradition because that I was born here. It extends to the fact that blood has been shed for my ability to stand behind this pulpit. That men believed. Men who didn't have shoes on their feet in Valley Forge there in Pennsylvania and they waited the winter out. That's what I look at when I say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. You know why kids do it at school now? 
They don't either. And I had a talk with a few of them, and I told them, I said, this is why you should do it, and this is what you should think about during that time. Otherwise, it's just a hollow tradition. The things that we do, and I can tell you, if you go to our capital, our nation's capital, and see, you'll see a lot of traditional things, but all of those traditions go back to something that's important. Back to an idea that men were willing to die for in order to secure, that we enjoy very easily and very lightly nowadays. And think about it. What a travesty it is for the youth of today to so lightly view what so great a price was paid to secure. And now weigh that against the blood of Christ. What a travesty it is to look and know about Jesus Christ and discount it and say, that's worthless, that's nothing. How foolish that that is. But it has become a bit of a tradition nowadays to bash Christianity. That if you're a southern white male, well, my goodness, you're the easiest target there is out there. That me being a quote-unquote southern white male, that if I say something about homosexuality being wrong and against the Word of God, and let me be clear, I do believe that with all of my heart, then I'm a hate monger. For me to be able to say and to look at a world that is filled with sin and the things that are wrong is that they need Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. They would look and say, well, he's just a religious fanatic. And I can tell you this, when it comes to my Lord and my Savior, yes, I am fanatical. I will do everything I can to hold on to that because I know that when the end of this life comes, that it's not going to be how much money's in my bank account it's not going to be the number of friends. I don't care how many people attend my funeral. That's not going to make one bit of difference as to whether or not I spend eternity in heaven or hell. The only relationship that matters ultimately is my relationship to Jesus Christ and Almighty God and belief in His blood shed for my sins and that He rose on the third day. But you'll find that if you get hooked up with that just right. Just as Moses reiterated to him there in, in uh, Deuteronomy 6, 5. If you love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might, you'll find that you'll love people too. You'll find that uh, you'll push sin as far away from you as you can get it. Does that mean you won't sin? No. I can't count on the best moment of the best day of my life to get me into heaven. It's simply not good enough. But what I can count on is in John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If a person wants to make it there, it's not traditionalism that's going to get them there. It's not good deeds. It's not who we know. And it's not what we have. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Apart from that, the only other option is hell for an eternity. Here in the United States, people, they look around and they say, I know a different way. I know another way. I can tell you, you can believe what you want to. 
But when truth comes, when that great and that terrible day comes, and Jesus said that when he comes back that all will behold, and that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. But at that point, it's too late. It's too late to try to believe then that we live in a world where people can believe in hollow, foolish traditions and can't seem to believe in a Savior who died for them. Died innocent. Died in our place and died because of us and instead of us that we might have eternal life. Let's all stand and get a song.